And the guy said, I'd like to speak to the head hog of the hog farm. And the secretary very quickly said, sir, we do not call our pastor the head hog. He said, oh, I'm sorry, ma'am. I, I just want to talk to him about contributing $10,000 to the church. And she said, well, just wait a minute. There are parking kids came in. Father, I just want to thank you for allowing us to be here. Thank you for your presence. Holy Spirit, I ask that you have your way in each of our lives. And Lord, what we hear this morning, God, I pray will make a difference. I pray for each person here, Lord God, that they would know your love, no matter where they are in life, that they know that the Holy Spirit is with them. So I'm asking, Holy Spirit, guide us this morning. Help me to say the things that you want me to say. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been going through the book, the story, and uh, the title of the, the chapter today is called The Hour of Darkness. And I subtitled it to Greater Work. The summary is Jesus knew the hour of darkness had come. His perspective was that it was time for him to go back to the Father. He knew that the devil had prompted Judah to betray him. What was amazing is, at the night of his betrayal, he was teaching his disciples how to be servants. And he actually instituted the Lord's Supper by foreshadowing that he was going to be broken and poured out. And he warns his disciples that he's leaving. But he encourages them and says, he gives them an eternal perspective. He says, Let not your heart be troubled. This is John 14, 1 through 4. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. For where I am, there you may be also, and you know the way where I'm going. He spoke of the Spirit of Truth coming, the Holy Spirit. He spoke of the Father and Himself being glorified. He agonized in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then there was the crucifixion. Have you ever questioned how effective your prayers are? Have you ever doubted when you're praying? Have you ever thought about how important your prayers are? Do you have any misgivings about yourself? Do you have any misgivings about Jesus?
In John 14, verses 12 to 14, Jesus begins by saying, truly, truly. And any time that Jesus says truly, truly, this is very important. There's a, there's a very, this is a big deal. This is something he wants us to understand. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he shall do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now, in the Message Bible, he says it this way. From now on, whatever you request, along the lines of who I am and what I am doing, I'll do it. That's how the Father will be seen for who He is in the Son. I mean it. Whatever you ask in this way, I'll do it. I'll do. You know, I've always looked at these scriptures. Being in the charismatic circle, I've always looked at these scriptures as supernatural things that Jesus was talking about. Doing greater works than Jesus? He gave sight to the blind. He opened up deaf ears. He cast out demons. And he raised people from the dead. Doing greater works than these. He also multiplied loaves of bread and fish. And in my mind, I can do a greater work. I can have five cheeseburgers and a couple of lobster tails, and I can multiply it for all of you. Is that a greater work? But I think we've missed the point. I think all too often we put the effect ahead of the cause. If you look at what Jesus is saying here, he's saying, ask. If you, if you look at what he was demonstrating before he died, he's talking about prayer. In John 16, 23 and 24, he says, in this day, you ask me no question." He says, truly, truly, whatever you ask the Father, He will give it to you in my name. Until now, you've asked for nothing in my name. Asking you receive that your joy will be made full. If you look at John 17, that whole chapter is prayer. And of course, when He was, when he was agonizing in the Garden of Gethsemane, He was praying. The greater work, the greater work is prayer. We all want to bear fruit, but if you look at the scriptures, fruit is birth through prayer. If you look at John 15, 7 and 8 and 16, he says this, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. 
By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. In verse 16, he says, You do not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain. That whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. You bear fruit through prayer. You want to see the supernatural? Pray. The greatest privilege that you and I have is praying for people. I feel sorry for people who may not be prayed for. I think their lives are impoverished. You know, if you've ever had a rebellious child, you can preach to that child, you can advise, you can send the counselors, you can lecture him to your red in the face. But if you pray for him, God can change his or her heart. Spouses can pray for one another. You pray for your colleagues. We have Pastor Bruce now. Before that was Pastor Tom Clarity. And, and when Tom came aboard, there was a move in the church for prayer. House to prayer. That was a time and a season for that. In some places, it continues on very strongly. Prior to Pastor Tom was Pastor Jim Ravel. And Pastor Jim Ravel did a lot of counseling, even to the point where it made it difficult for him to prepare for messages and for his own private prayer time. Finally, he decided, when people came to him for counsel or advice, they said they're going to pray with him. Let's pray. Let's see what the Lord wants to say. I can tell you a lot of things. The thing about counseling people is that a lot of times they only want to hear what they want to hear. They're not going to change. But the Lord has a way of changing hearts, and He does that in response to prayer. I've got a problem. I have a weakness. In Romans 8, verse 26, it says, In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. Let me ask you this. How often do you ask the Holy Spirit to help you? We're very aware of Jesus Christ, and we're very aware of the Father. But how often, when you start your day, do you ask for the help of the Holy Spirit? He is known as the Helper. When you're in distress, do you ask for the Comforter? He's also known as the Comforter. When you need direction, do you call out for the Spirit of Truth to guide you into all truth? He is the Spirit of Truth. You know that Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit? Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit. Jesus was anointed of the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel, to heal the brokenhearted, to set the captives free. And you can ask for the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus said, if you then being evil know how to give good, good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? If you are a believer, it says that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The greatest one, the greatest gift that Jesus has given us is sending the Holy Spirit. But I have a weakness. But I'm not alone. The Apostle Paul said he has a weakness. That he does not know how to pray as he should. And so often I pray according to my flesh. Oh, I hate it when somebody's sick. I have a daughter right now that's in constant pain. I hate it. But how, how do I pray? How, how do I pray? There's a man by the name of John Wimmer who was in the Vineyard Movement Church. And he really thought healing, that God would really manifest healing in his church. And when they started doing it, everybody got sick. And when somebody would call him from the hospital who was sick, he would say, Lord, is this sickness unto death, or should I really pray for healing? You know, you can, you can be healed and go home. I don't know how to pray, as I said. And he who searches the heart knows what the mind of spirit is. Because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. It's like, you know, the Holy Spirit is in me. And the God has discussion, what, what should we pray for? What does what is, what is Steve, Steve need to pray about? He who searches the heart knows what the mind of spirit is. I have the Holy Spirit in me. But he prays for us according to his will. Does that mean you don't pray for people? No, I'm not saying that. Ephesians 6 says this with all prayer and petition, pray in the Spirit. Jude 20 says, Build yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. And how devoted are we really? you hearing God. Take an honest look at your prayer life. How many petitions do we bring before the Lord? How much time do we take to be quiet and listen? Matthew 6, verse 8 for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Of course he does. He's God. So what's the purpose of prayer? In a relationship between a husband and a wife, between friends, if you if you talk, you listen. And if it's a close friend, you'll have some really transparent discussions. But it isn't one-sided. It's not you talking all the time. It's listening as well. In our relationship with the Father, it's listening as well as talking to Him. And so what is the purpose of prayer? 
if I talk with my wife on a regular basis, I get to know her more and more and more. I get to know her more and more and more. The purpose of prayer is to know God more and more and more. One thought from God is a whole lot more powerful than my list of petitions before God. Because He knows what I need. He knows what I should be praying about for whom I'm praying about. His sheep will hear His voice. In Matthew 10, verse 27, it says, What you hear whispered in your ear... Proclaim about the housetops. Why would he say what, what is whispered in your ear? To me, that denotes an intimate relationship. My friend, Jesus calls me my, his friend if I do what he asked me to do. My friend and I have an intimate relationship. He whispers things in your ear. In 1 John... 5.14, and it says, This is the confidence which we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Well, I don't know what His will is. If you're honestly asking that question, then how do you find the solution if you don't know what His will is? You read the Word. You read the Word. It's got everything that you need to know. And as far as the Holy Spirit is concerned, if He's prompting you to do something, do it. And quite often, He's prompting me when I sin. Stop it. Repent. Change. Some people say, well, I don't know what His purpose is for my life. I am convinced that if you do His will, when He's talking to you, when you read His Word, He will get you to where you're supposed to go. The gift that He has given you will be manifested. I am uh, confident that as a child of God, that you are in the hand of God, that He orchestrates your circumstances for your good. You say, well, if you orchestrate my circumstances, where is my free will? It's in the circumstance. What are you going to choose to do? You can know God's purpose for your life if you do the Word of God. Psalm 75 says that judgment doesn't come from the east or the west, nor from the desert. God is a judge. He promotes one and He demotes another. He's in control. And He loves each of us very much. John 14, verses 21. He says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is He who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by the Father, and I will love him, and I will disclose myself to him. I will reveal myself to him. John, I'm going backwards here a little bit. John 16, 12 says, I still have many things to tell you, but, I, but you can't handle them now. You know what? The Lord wants to tell each of us more things. But if we don't walk in the truth that He's given us, He's not going to give us more because it'll hurt us. 
young believers start to know what the Word of God is. But if, if God gives them too much, they can't handle it. It can become distorted and ignore and be out of balance. But God wants to reveal more stuff, and one way He does is by us being obedient to the Word. He discloses more of who He is and His Word. Is character important for a believer? Jesus said in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That has to do with character. If I'm walking in sin, why would He want to show me anymore? It blinds me to who He is. There should be a difference. If you have been walking with the Lord 20 years, there should be a difference for you now than when you first started walking with Him. And walking denotes character. God will show us more when He sees that we can handle it. That we are men and women of God. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, He asked James, John, and Peter, couldn't you men watch with me for one hour? I'm guilty of saying, Lord, will you watch these prayers for me? I'm praying for this person. Lord, will you watch with me? Should the question be, are we watching with Jesus concerning that person? Concerning the circumstance that you're in? Jesus said a number of different times, watch and pray, you don't fall into temptation. Watch with Him. It's a discipline. Are we really devoted to hearing what God has to say? In verse 28, it says this. This is after he's talking about the need for the Holy Spirit to be in our prayer life. He says, And all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. There's two reasons why God puts people in your life, in my life, that irritate us. One, to show us that we're not as godly as we think we are. And two, he grants us discernment as to their weakness. I have delusions, and so do you. And the problem with delusions is that you can't see them. It helps if you're married. You're supposed to see them. But instead of criticizing and judging that purpose, the Holy Spirit says, This person is weakness. Pray for them. All things work together for good for those who love God and call the according to purpose. You know, whatever circumstance you find yourself in, wherever God has placed you uh, as, a, as a mom, as a dad, if you're working somewhere in the church, those people who's placed around us, we're, we're to pray for them. And if they irritate the heck out of you, pray for them. And ask the Holy Spirit for help. Because you know what? When I have a person in my life who is irritating me, I really don't know how to pray for him. Because my motives aren't good. I need to help. 
I need the help of the Holy Spirit. What are you saying here? How am I supposed to pray for this person? And Bruce said it earlier when he said, It is not about us. It's all about Him. And the reason the Holy Spirit came was that the Father and the Son would be glorified in us. So when we pray, it's all about the Lord. I think, as I was thinking about this, there's a number of obstacles to effective prayer. But I think two of the biggest hindrances are judgmentalism and offense offense and unforgiveness. And I, I think all too often we do not equate offense with unforgiveness. It's the same thing. I wouldn't want to die with offense in my heart. It puts me in a bad place. Because Jesus said this. After he taught the apostles or the disciples how to pray, he said, unless you forgive, your Father in heaven won't forgive you. So where does that put you when you die? In the Message Bible, Matthew 6, verses 14 to 15, it says, in prayer there is a connection between what God does and what you do. You can't get forgiveness from God, for instance, without also forgiving others. If you refuse to do your part, you cut yourself off from God's part. And Peter talks about how husbands are to treat wives as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Let your prayers be hindered. That's a principle for all of us. It doesn't have to be between a husband and a wife. It's how you're treating other people. I'm being real honest. I don't think the prayers of the church are that effective. I think we walk in a lot of delusion. And one of them is judgmentalism. And when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the Pharisee and the publican that Jesus was talking about, or the tax gatherer and the Pharisee. He said, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. So how many of you were honest on your tax return? Oh, I, I, I'm not an adulterer. No, no, I'm not a swindler. Mm-mm. Don't dismiss the fact that you judge people. And it's so subtle, we do it all the time. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I think one of the most powerful prayers we can have is simply asking for grace and mercy. You don't know how to pray? Ask for mercy. We're to go boldly before the throne of grace to obtain mercy and to find grace to help in time of need. That's why we need a Savior. God, be merciful to me as sinner. But what we tend to do is we see a weakness in somebody, we judge it. I was at church at the open door in Maple Grove last Sunday with my son-in-law. And... Uh, 
the pastor is very, I call him poetic, he's waving his hands, and he's got a delivery that I don't necessarily like, but God dealt with me right away. He said, you judge that pastor, you're not going to hear what I'm saying. You come into a situation, you judge somebody, you're not going to hear what God may be saying to that person. A couple weeks ago, um, I got a call. I am an insurance agent. I got a call from somebody who was not my client who wanted to know why her insurance premium went down. Normally, I get them when they go up. Why did my premium go up? I said, well, I don't know. I'm always familiar with that account. I said, let me get your file and see. And I was looking at it, and I said, well, I, I, I discovered one reason it went down, and I think here's another one. You know, you ever talk to somebody, especially if you don't get a response? So, well, I explained it again. She said, well, maybe I ought to wait until so-and-so gets up. I said, no, this, this, is the, this is the reason. So I explained it three times. So this, this is the reason. And then she said, oh, thank you. You know, it's like... It's like you're talking to somebody face to face and they'll give you an expression. Well, how else can I say it? Well, anyway, I went out after I, I was done. I went out and I told my agent, I said, fine, this is the case today. Within 24 hours, the Holy Spirit was convicting me of my judgmentalism. She was different. You can find good in people, especially if you the Holy Spirit in them. Actually, each one of us could go to the the rest of our lives because they can continually find fault in us. God is saying, look for good things in people. They're just different. Well, Lord, I don't, know. I don't understand. Every time I want to explain something, I get it the first time. Am I breaking out in the wrath? It is so easy to judge people. It's a cultural thing. But I want to tell you, it's in the church. And it's in the church at a big time. And it's kind of, we took a realistic look at how effective our prayers are. James says that the uh, prayers of a righteous man are effective. Well, if we're all walking in delusion, and there's no excuse for delusion because delusion is the result of sin. James said, don't be merely hearers of the word, but be doers, lest you become deluded. I don't exactly know how that works, but the more truth that you get, and you don't respond to it, you become more deluded. Offense, unforgiveness, and judgmentalism. It's big time. And if you're thinking there's somebody else right now, you're judging. Stop it. The gospel can only change you. Can't change the other person to think about. These, these things are hindrances to effective prayer. The greatest work that you and I can do because of the greatest work is prayer. That's the way God designed it. And it works. Now, if you've got difficulty in your life, it takes a while sometimes for God to do what He needs to do. But believe, trust. 
I don't talk about the atonement. Because it's because of the atonement that we have effective prayers. I was reading a book by Bill O'Reilly of Fox News. They always tell the truth. The book that he that he wrote with help from another person is called The Killing of Jesus. And it's more of a factual, it's a background thing. And I'll tell you, the Romans were brutal. And so was the Sanhedrin. They were corrupt men. And they devised one of the most brutal punishments that man has ever followed. And that's crucifixion. The, the thing that they used to, to, to uh, whip Jesus is called a flagrum. It has three leather tendrils, three feet long, and at the ends are bits of metal and bits of uh, sheep bone. Or they use lead weight, depending upon what they wanted to do. You know, if you're headed for crucifixion and punishment, some didn't make it. Because if those tendrils had pieces of sheep bone and, and metal, Historically, you know, Bill already did research, and what the historical accounts say is that this was so brutal that it would actually rip your muscles and your flesh away that your internal organs would be thin. So chances are you didn't make it to the crucifixion. But in Jesus' case, Pilate did not want him to die. So the assumption is that they used lead and not these sharp bits of bone or metal, but these lead balls. Now, that will do damage, too. That, that will also make you bleed. In Jesus' case, that's the presumption. You start in the back, go all the way down your calves. Now, Jesus, as he's going through that, being the Son of Man, was crying out in pain. I don't think he was smiling about this. He had not had fluids for some time, so he was going through dehydration. His body was starting to go into shock. And the, and the Roman soldiers were very brutal. Actually, they were called death squads. There are actually five. This is what they did as far as uh, crucifying people. There were three that were responsible for nailing you and, and so forth. But in the whipping, they would alternate. One would whip you, and then the other one would whip you. There was a third one there as a substitute in case you got tired. Fourth, fourth one was there to count the number of lashes. And the fifth one was there as a supervisor. Roman soldiers put this purple cloak on Jesus. You put material on open wounds, and when the blood dries and you rip off the cloak, what happens? It's more painful. And as evil as they were, then they cut a tall white shrub with elliptical leaves and small green flowers. But the dominant feature were one-inch curved thorns that they weaved into a crown and then they placed it on Jesus' head and pushed down. 
You can imagine the pain going through his nervous system as he did that. And research indicates that as far as the cross, basically the vertical part, which is eight feet tall, was always on the hill. They used that over and over and over. What Jesus was probably hauling on his back was a six-foot six plank of wood that had splinters in it going into his wounds that weighed between 50 and 70 pounds. And it was about a half mile from where he was whipped to Calvary. And once Jesus got there, he was forced to lay down and three of the soldiers got one guy on his left arm, the other one got on his right arm, and the third one got on his chest. He was not going anywhere. Then they take six-inch square spikes that come to a point at the end, and they place it between the ulna, or the radius and the ulna on your wrist, and when your arm is pinned down, they would grind the, the spike in there just to make sure it was going the right place. And then the hammer came down. Then they do it on the other one. And then once Jesus was nailed to the horizontal plank of wood, then they would hoist him up. And there was a groove in the, in the vertical plank, which is about eight feet. And that horizontal plank would fit into the groove of the vertical plank. And then the soldiers would hold him against there. They would bend his knees and clasp his feet. And take the nail. And nail it through the metatarsal bones. Metatarsal bones, you can see them right here. Bill O'Reilly says, you know what, they did research on that. It's really unusual that your bones weren't busted when they did that, but if you read the Bible, Jesus' bones were not broken. I want to tell you something. Jesus knew all about crucifixion because he thought before he was crucified that was a common Roman punishment. And they did it openly to intimidate people. As a matter of fact, Jesus had predicted that Rome would be destroyed 70 years later or so because of the rebellion. So the Roman legions surrounded Jerusalem. They let people in like in Passover. They wouldn't let you out though. If you tried to escape, they crucified you. And history shows that they crucified over 2,000 people. They ran out of wood. They had important wood to crucify more Jews. So crucifixion, I can't imagine it, was not unique to Jesus Christ. What is unique? What is unique is that he took the wrath of God for you and me. Because of your sin and my sin, the sin that you may have committed this morning, yesterday, and will commit tomorrow. The Father and Son were in a perfect love relationship. And there was three hours of darkness where Jesus says, Father, why have you forsaken me? That's something that you and I will never understand the horror of. 
And when Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane, it said that he was sweating drops of blood. They, they have made observations of men doing that, and typically they're on their way to execution. There's actually a medical term for it called hematidrosis. It comes about because of intense anxiety. I don't think Jesus was concerned about his death. Because he said, for this purpose, he came to this hour of darkness. What he was concerned about is getting through this as the Son of God. Son of, I mean, I'm not the Son of God, the Son of Man. The Son of God, Satan couldn't touch him yet. He could call, he said, I can call legions of angels down. It was getting through as the Son of Man. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, your will be done. In your life or my life, are we saying the same thing? We can't get through this without trusting in God. You know, I said before, have you ever had misgivings about yourself or about Jesus Christ? Some people say, I don't have any misgivings about Jesus, but I do have a lot of stuff. That is not true. Think about all the times that you will go to your well of abilities and strength and your own creativity trying to figure out and solve a problem. How often do we do that? Do we really have confidence in Jesus Christ? Is He who He says He is? I'm guilty of it. I can look back at my life and there's times I continue to go back to my own strategies. That's why I'm offended. You see, come to a point, you know, there's things that bothered me 20 years ago that don't bother me now. Am I really, really trusting in Jesus Christ? I'm going to Ephesians, not Ephesians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is Paul talking about the Lord's Supper. Let me go over with you again exactly what goes on in the Lord's Supper and why it's so centrally important. I received my instructions from the Master himself and passed them on to you. The Master Jesus, on the night of his betrayal, took bread, having given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body broken for you. Do this to remember me. After supper, he did the same thing with the cup. This cup is my blood, my new covenant with you. Each time you drink this cup, remember me. What you must solemnly realize is that every time you eat this bread and every time you drink this cup, you reenact in your words and actions the death of the Master. You will be drawn back to this meal again and again until the Master returns. You must never let familiarity breed contempt. Anyone who eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Master irreverently is like part of the crowd that jeered and spit on him at his death. Is that the kind of remembrance you want to be part of? Examine your motives. Test your heart. Come to this meal in holy awe. If you give no thought or worse, don't care about the broken body of the Master when you eat and drink, you're running the risk of serious consequences. 
That's why so many of you now are listless and sick, and others have gone to an early grave. If we get this straight now, we won't have to be straightened out later on. Better to be confronted by the Master now than to face this fiery confrontation later. The one thing that's happened is the fear of the judgment seat. There is a judgment seat. Paul is very clear about that. And we will be recompensed for the deeds done in our body. That's why I said, I don't want to die with offense in my heart. It's a bad place to be. Or judgmentalism. Or anger. Or jealousy. I'd rather deal with it now. Do we really, are we really confident in Jesus? So what circumstances this morning dictated your behavior? What did somebody tell you this morning, yesterday, or whatever, that has affected how you think and feel and do? Well, you don't know what it's like. You, you don't know what it's like when I was a kid and what my dad did to me. Johnny Erickson Powell broke her neck when she was 17. She doesn't have good days. Some days are really not good. She doesn't want to see people. But her overall attitude has been a godly attitude. She's had confidence in Jesus Christ, and she has ministered the millions of people. Joyce Myers. She was sexually abused 200 times. Her first marriage was a crisis. I left her after a year and a half. Now, let's say Joyce Meyer becomes an old lady, dies, but allowed the circumstances of her life to dictate who she was going to be. She gets before the judgment seat of Christ, dying a bitter woman. Jesus will talk to her about it, and that's where your tears are going to come from, is the sorrow that we will feel because we didn't obey the Lord. Jesus is saying, you know, there were some tough things that happened in your life. But this is what I did for you. I gave my best for you. You could have my life. But instead, you allow the circumstances of your life this today, yesterday, 20 years ago, to dictate what you were going to do. And because of that, you lost out in a worldwide ministry. But as you know, that's not what Joyce Meyer has chosen. That's not what Johnny Erickson Tata has chosen. Remember Nick, the guy from Australia, born without any limbs? He says, there are people who envy me now. You know why? Because he's ministering to millions of people. They have the right attitude. They're going to finish well. They're going to be before the judgment seat. And they're going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. But how often do we allow what people say to us, do to us, dictate how we're going to live our lives? It's like, it's like religious people. But we're denying the power of God. He has given us His life to live it out, to trust in Him, to be confident in Him. He went to the cross. He took your sin and my sin that we could have life and have it abundantly. 
and he did the greater work. His atonement is the greater work. So that when you pray for that person who irritates you, you can do it in the power of the cross. Each one of us who has the Holy Spirit in us, who's been born again, can walk in this newness of life. We don't have to allow what happened to us yesterday to dictate what we're going to do today, what we're going to think. We can trust and confidently trust in Jesus Christ that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. When you pray in His name, His name encompasses the crucifixion. It encompasses the resurrection. We can pray in His name for what He's already done the work that's finished. And we can live the life that He wants us to live, and we can finish well because of the cross. We have communion. Let's get honest. Let's get honest with the Holy Spirit. If He is pointing out something, make it right. Like Paul said, I'd rather deal with this now than the fiery confrontation later on. I don't want to allow sin in my life, what other people said about me that's critical. I don't want the circumstances of my life to dictate how I'm going to end my life. My confidence is not going to be in myself. It's going to be in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray, create in us clean hearts and renew a right spirit within us. Do not cast us away from your presence. Do not take the Holy Spirit from us. Restore to us the joy of your salvation. Sustain us with a willing spirit. Then we'll teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Lord God, I pray in the name of Jesus that as we have heard your word, that we would be the same. Lord, deal with us. Holy Spirit, help us to respond in a godly way. Thank you, Jesus, that you gave your life, that we could have your life forever. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you have come to reside in these weak vessels to help us, to comfort us, to direct us. Father, I pray your blessings on each of us here, Almighty God, that we would be different, that we'd be more like you, that we truly have confidence in you. Holy Spirit, have your way, even now, in Jesus' name.